Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey guys, welcome back to the show today. This week I'm talking with my friend and co-writer, Ross King. Ross is a hit songwriter with Centricity Music in Franklin, Tennessee, with cuts by Jordan Feliz, Newsboys, J.J. Heller, and many more. In addition to writing songs for himself and other artists, Ross is a successful sync music writer with multiple placements on TV. We are discussing the value of building a loyal fan base, the pros and cons of having a publishing deal as a songwriter, and three things that will help you be successful in music. Please enjoy my conversation with Ross King. All right. Hey, guys. I am sitting here and talking with my friend Ross King. How are you today, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. It is good to be with Thanks for letting me come over and hang out in your studio. Yeah. I love it. I never have people here, so it's kind of fun. I had to clean up a little bit. <laughs> it looks great. Uh, so you and I have known each other for a couple of years now, yeah. right? Yeah. I think so. And um, I was trying to remember, like, how did we how did we meet? I think through Chris Clayton. That's right, Chris Clayton. Because he was interested in pursuing sync and yes. at the time. And he and I, I were doing, writing. I was doing really well in sync at the time. Uh, and he was like, hey, I want to write sync. And I was like, great. And then he had connected with you. That's somewhere. right. Yep. He and I got together and then we brought you in on, on a song. So, um, And we've written a few since then. Yeah. And yeah. So we're just waiting for them to land. At this, at this, at the moment of this recording, we're just waiting for something to hit. Now you've been very successful in sync, and we'll get into all that kind of stuff. Um, but so people know who you are. Yeah, songwriter, uh, CCM, Christian music artist, songwriter, yep. and lead, lead worship from time to time, I believe, right? Yes. And uh, write sync music for TV and film projects. And um, what else do you do besides that? Uh, well, I mean, like most of us in this job, I have to do a lot of things, you know, yep. decently to make a living. But um, yeah, so all that you said, I, I have an independent artist career as a Christian musician, and I write for CCM and for, you know, nothing real big in any other genres, but I've written in country and pop right. and all that stuff sure. too. And then in the sync world, you know, I've mostly made, uh, I've had a few successes in kind of like ads type music, mm-hmm. and then I do concerts through my my artist career and I do a lot of coaching and mentoring type songwriting stuff yeah where I you know have private students or whatever and and I just um, I'll, I'll, I'll quickly say I've, I just finished a video course um, a songwriting video course that I'm starting to sell to so you know it's you got to do a lot of stuff in this job yeah we'll, to make it we'll, we'll talk about a little more in depth on that stuff as we as yeah. we go but let's back up just for a minute here and 
tell us, you know, where you're from, what got you into music to begin with as a kid and what, you know, that where that love came from and yeah. kind of how you progressed throughout your career as we as we talk about this. Yeah, sure. So I was born in Texas and lived in Texas for most of my life in College Station, Bryan area where Texas A&M is. And uh, I wasn't really a musical kid. My, my parents love music and my mom is a pretty good piano player. Like she plays, um, she's played for years at churches and stuff. And she's a really solid m- musician. Um, and my dad, you know, uh, was always playing kind of old school country and uh, a lot of that kind of stuff in the house. And and they always appreciated good good songwriting. And so I grew up hearing that sort of thing all the time and being in church and hearing good music there. And when I was about 15 or 16, I got interested in the drums for some reason. And I had taken piano lessons once or twice very briefly as a kid and just never stuck with it. I I have a very kind of right-brained ADD, overly creative, which is to say I I don't like kind of lines and columns and math, right? So sheet music always bugged me and I just couldn't really (laughs) get it. And so I I would take piano and then I would just drop out and take piano and I would drop out. Uh, but I always loved music, so I've tried go to I'd, you know try choir and whatever. So anyway, when I was a, a teenager, I got interested in drums, and you know drums are interesting because they they're the they require a lot of like weird motor function stuff, and if you have it, then it's pretty easy to move forward with it. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had it, you know, I could do all the stuff with my various limbs, you know, that you needed to do not well, but I could you know make my foot do this while my hand did this, you know, yeah. and so I started playing drums. And got in a band at about 16 and started playing drums in the band. And, I, and that band wrote songs. So at some point I was like, hey, I want to write songs. And so I would, you know, but I was a drummer, right? So I would make the guitar guys figure out what I was trying to do, you know. And But we, we did a record, like a, you know, went to a studio and did, did, did a record. And one of the songs was a song that I, that I wrote and I sang on it. And it was terrible, you know. It was like a love song about something <laughs> I had no knowledge of, just made up. But the people in our school responded to it, and I remember thinking, "Oh, people like this song," and they kind of can't believe that their friend wrote this song. And so that kind of gave me the bug, you know, mm-hmm. of I think I'm going to keep doing this when I can. And so I got back onto the piano, and you know, again, I'm I'm very nominal at those two instruments, but those were kind of formative for me to start writing. And I went on from there, and you know, by the time I was in college, I was I had a guitar and was writing all the time and making music. So when you're in college, and like, okay, you kind of hit that stride, you start writing. What what is inspiring you to write? Like, what kind of music are you? What kind of songs are you trying to write in college? Right. So I grew up in the church, and so the early stuff. Well, when I was a kid and in that band, it was like rock music, you know, yeah. love songs that, you know, like, like I said, that had zero basis in actual life and um, you know, just pop songs. And we were trying to be back then Duran Duran or The Cure or something, you know, right. just like something between, you know, market, general market pop and alt pop. And, but by the time I got to college, I was a lot more serious in my faith. And so it became a lot more real songs about my life, my faith, my belief, God, you know, all that stuff. And so, and, and then in terms of influences, you know, this is the early to mid nineties. So I'm listening to Rich Mullins and I'm kind of, I'm deep diving on Keith Green and, you know, Christian music at the time was, 
not to sound like a grumpy old man, but it was a lot more bold mm-hmm. and probably sort of more Bible-y and more direct than it is now, for better or, or for worse. I don't know that it was musically great, but it was lyrically trying to get at stuff that probably it doesn't do as much now. And I was really interested in that. I, I was drawn to this kind of prophet type of music, you know, where somebody would poke the bear mm-hmm. and say, here's a concept that maybe the church needs to hear or something, you know? And so I was drawn to that. Um, and I did a lot of acoustic pop with a prophetic, you know, kick the hornet's nest kind of a vibe to it. Interesting. Yeah. Now, did you go to college for music, or did it just happen to be that something that you were pursuing while you were in college? No, I was... I. The idea that I would have pers- I would have studied music in college was just like crazy to me. I went to Texas A and M right there in in my hometown, and they didn't even have that. Okay. And and I just came up around sort of hardworking, you know, bootstraps type people who would have said, "Get a real job," mm-hmm. and not in a bad way. Just who would have t- who would have encouraged me to have a real trade, you know. Right. So I actually pursued political science uh, with the thought that I would either go to law school or maybe some kind of job in like research because I just liked reading and that sort of thing, pretty nerdy stuff, but. But just somewhere in the college experience, I started getting, I started making these like tapes. This is, you know, 1992, 93. So I started making these recordings of my music and putting them on tape. And people, and I would sell them. I would just, you know, I would go to like a, a the Baptist student thing or whatever and get a little asked to, could I, can, I, can, I, can I play here and sell my tapes, you know? And they'd let me do it and I'd sell the tapes, you know? And so then it, it just kind of, by the time I was graduating... Um, I had gigs and I was selling stuff. And so I thought, well, I'll just see if I can do this job for a while. And there's a whole other story there where I, there was a thing at A&M that's still going on called Breakaway Ministries. And it's this massive Bible study that meets on Tuesdays. It's like eight or 9,000 people. And at the time, I was going to the early days of that. And they knew about my songwriting and my music. And so they, they at some point kind of pulled me into that and said, hey, do you want to help us do this? And so by the time I graduated, I, I had that sort of a vehicle too, where I was leading worship on Tuesday nights for a thousand people. You know, I, even though I didn't ever, I'd never done anything like that, you know, right. and sharing my songs there. So all of that kind of springboarded me in a way that made it to where when I graduated college, I didn't really have to have my plan all figured out, right? And so it, 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 at the time, was very much a, I'll get a job someday, but right now, people are calling me to do gigs and buying my records. And I was single, you know, so I was, I was fine yeah. in terms of money. Can you, yeah. can you imagine a world like that? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, you and I have a very similar background in that where, you know, I mean, I went to, I went to Bible college. Actually, I went to a couple of different ones. So I went... Um, the first one was in Kansas City, and you know I was there learning to get a Bible degree in youth ministry and that kind of thing. But I was doing music, and I was I recorded my first album, our first tape at the yeah. time, our first cassette tape. If people yeah. remember what th- those things are, oh yeah, um, you know. And so, but we had this this thing on on Saturday nights called Impact, where it was this youth program where all the kids around Kansas City would come to Youth for Christ, the organization that I went to school at. And they put on these Saturday night programs, yeah. and they had live music, and they'd have a speaker and, and this type of stuff. And um, but the people at Youth for Christ knew that I was playing music. They they knew I was a songwriter and that I played guitar and sang, and because um, I was doing it all the time, you know, around there. And so 
it got to the point that they would bring me in sometimes to play, use their band, and they would have me sing. You know, like I said, it's like a thousand kids or whatever it was. And so... Yeah, and so you you, you feel like you're Stephen Curtis Chapman of course. in that moment. And at like, the time, that's who I wanted to be. Right, you know, that's who sure. I... That's the, he was Same. my mentor, and so that's what we were, you know... But well, to, and the thing that's interesting about those kind of stories, because this is true of mine too, is that a lot of real acts who are successful and have worked way harder than you and I had worked at that point don't play for crowds that size. Right. Because we're, we're not, they're not coming for us. Right. They're coming for the event and they were, and they were platformed there. Exactly. And it's like, and so it's weird because I would tell people by the time I finished breakaway, it was running 7,000 people. And I'm sitting there saying, I, I was playing larger crowds than 95% of the CCM acts in the world play for. Right. And I had not earned it. <laughs> the way, you know what I'm saying? Right. Because you wasn't, they weren't coming for me. Right. They're coming for the event but and you get to be a part me. of the event. Yes, yes. But it's like a great training ground for, okay, Absolutely. if it ever gets huge, this is what it'll be like. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was a, it's a great training ground. And that's something that I would encourage people that are listening. If you've got an opportunity to be a part of an organization that is putting on programs like that, mm-hmm. whether it's in a Christian organization or, or mainstream or whatever, but if, if, if people are coming for an event and that you have got access to be a part of that somehow to where you can be on stage and playing music, um, you know, it's a perfect scenario. Yes. Because you are a part of something that's bigger. Right. And it's perfect practice, you know, quote unquote, you know, as you learn your craft and, um, you know, a lot of people rag on American Idol and all those shows because it's kind of a manufactured thing, and sure. it automatically puts you as the as the contestant in front of millions of people watching. You know, but there is a, you know, some people don't like that, and some people think that's the only way that you can do it. And I think there's right. a there's a, right. yes and well, and people like you and I who are who want to be songwriters primarily. I, when people ask me, "Oh, do you hate American Idol? Do you hate the Voice?" I'm like, no, yeah, because those people, if they don't write, if their main thing is doing that. My main thing isn't doing that. My main thing isn't getting up there and being cool on stage. I'd rather just stay at home and write a song. So yeah. I, I'm glad those people are out there because maybe they want a song, right? right? And, you know, if I'm a true believer in like sort of the collaborative body of Christ thing, it's like, oh, well, the person who can sing and play really well and is pretty and skinny and wants to be cool on stage, yeah. I give them my song, yeah. you know? Well, and that's, that's going to be a good segue down the road here in our conversation because you have actually gotten to write for artists who have come from American Idol sure. and those types of things. So we're that's a real life scenario that you've lived through, which is a really cool, cool thing. So I, we'll get to that here in just a little bit. Yeah. Um, so at what point did you move from after college? Did you just move straight to Nashville at that point or were you out on the out touring? What did you do? No, I, I, I didn't come here until like six years ago. Okay. Um, and so I spent a long time in Texas because once I, so coming, do you remember a band called Cadman's Call? Oh yeah. Okay. So at the end of my college time, and this is another one of those funny kind of platform things we were just talking about. At the end of my college time, I got asked to play this festival at Texas A&M. And the way they did these festivals, this one Christian fraternity group, would put these these festivals on, and they would they would set them up to where there was like a big act that everyone had had heard of that was signed on and on the radio, mm-hmm. and then maybe like a mid level B level act that was but was loved, you know, um, and and then they'd have like a local just for free kind of right. you know. Well, I was that local that I would I would get that call a lot. Well, my last year of college, the Cademans was that mid level, and they were blowing up in that kind of 
Dave Matthews Band Underground yep. Way, yep. you know. 40 Acres. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and this was even pre that stuff, you know, right. but they were huge in the unsigned, but, I mean, they were probably, you know, selling out shows all over the place and not even signed yet. Well, I, because it was my crowd, it was, it was my local crowd, I kind of like crushed, but it wasn't because I was that great. It was just all my friends were there. Right. So it was like this crazy loud. So it looked like I was just killing it, you know, even though I probably was just okay. And Cademans saw that and they were like, hey, this guy's crushing the same crowds that, that, that we are. So they took me out for a couple of shows okay. for some like CD release, big, big shows. And so I got kind of positioned right out of college to be one at this breakaway thing, which was, you know, at the time, a thousand people per, per week. And Cademans was having me out to do stuff. So it was like, I just got thrown into, whereas 90% of my gigs were 30 people, you know, it was like a little youth group and I'm playing Lord, I lift your name on high, you know, or whatever. Well, suddenly I have these other two things that are kind of platforming me in, in a more visible way. And so I just kept doing that, just getting calls. You know, I mean, I was selling a couple hundred CDs a month out of the back of my car for $10 a pop, you know, yeah. and I had no real bills to pay and wasn't married or kids or any, any of that. So I just did that and it, and it just kept going. So these two sides of my, of my ministry where I had worship leading gigs that I was getting mostly because of the breakaway thing. And then I was getting concerts um, because I was just doing records and, and doing the singer songwriter thing. So I, I was playing, you know, 10 days a month, um, and I, and I did that for 20 years, I mean, 15, 20 years, yeah. you know, and, and it, you know, it, it varied. There were times when I took interim worship leader jobs at churches or different things, right? I owned a studio for a little while where I recorded and produced other people, but I mean, that was my deal. And I, I never, I would fly out here to, to, to Nashville to write sometimes, or I'd have little moments where maybe a song of mine would pop. And somebody out here would hear it and wonder about it and, you know, contact me. But it just, when I came out here, it never worked. I was never, um, I always joke that there's like a hello Cleveland factor that I've never had. And, and I call it that because it's like, hello Cleveland, get on your feet. Yeah. You know, I don't have that. Like, I'm not good at that. <laughs> right. I want to be on a stool with a coffee in my hand and, you know, whatever, yeah. telling stories. And I just, people could see that when I would come out here, you know, so I just stayed in Texas and, and I would even, I remember this feeling of landing the plane in College Station, Texas, every time I came out here and thinking, literally every time, yeah, it feels good to be home. I'll, I'll never live in, 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 in that Nashville and do that life. And, you know, it can get into why I changed my mind, but it, I really was committed to just being at home or, you know, being where my family was, being near my wife's family, you know, as I got married and those kind of things. And just I just liked Texas and didn't think I would do this life for the longest time. So it's interesting that you say that and that you spent so much time sort of based out of Texas and still touring. Like when right. you were, let me ask you this, when you were touring, were you touring all over the country? Was it more regional, just sort of in Texas in the surrounding area? Or how far out were you, were you going over those 15, 20 years of... I mean, I've been to 40 to 50 states, you know. Uh, performing. Um, performing, yeah. yeah. And a lot of that was worship. And some of it was art, was artist stuff, you know. And this is all pre and just getting into the sort of online age that we're in now. Yeah. So you you could go somewhere. I guess this is still true, but you can when you're indie, you can go somewhere. You can go to Pennsylvania, and 
have a massive crowd because somehow someone there has gotten into you Mm -hmm. or one radio station played you or something. And they can think you are, you know, famous. But then you can go the next town over, the next church over, and they don't have a clue who who you are. And so that's a lot of what was happening for me is I would have little pockets of fans. And, you know, and you... You 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 kind of alluded to this earlier, but there's this idea that we were talking about the whole idea of you know like playing in front of a thousand people that we didn't draw right. Well, there's right. the whole thing about being an indie musician where if you have a tribe that's way into you, then people will come because they trust that person. Right. Right. So if I get a youth minister or a pastor or or whatever, you know, somebody in a town who's into me, they can say, guys, on Sunday night. This guy Ross is going to be here. His music has really mattered to me. You should come. Mm-hmm. You know, it's free, but he'll have he'll have stuff here. Whatever. And I've I've had a really just um, blessed kind of fortuitous career of that of people committed to me enough that they get other people to to buy in, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, I don't know how I would do it with without that kind of that without that kind of support. Um, but that's the key, you know, again, that, this is maybe for later, but that, the idea that you have true fans mm-hmm. who will tell people about you, that's way more important than a bunch of Spotify streams. Way more. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I, so I, what I was going to say a minute ago was, I think it's interesting that you mentioned how you're able to base yourself out of Texas, right. out of your home state for so long. And making a living doing this, right? Right. Touring and selling records. And um, because so many of the guests that have been on this show, we talk about how you almost, almost, not always, but almost always have to be in Nashville or LA or New York or one of these music metropolitan areas that that's what they're known for. If you're going to make a living in music, you have to be in one of these locations to be, really be successful at that. And in most cases, I think that's true as we get into talk about publishing and right. and writing and things like that. But as an artist, and I was the same way as you, I, I'm from Paducah, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And for years, I lived out of my hometown and toured. And I was always going either to Florida or to Kansas City. Hmm. And sort of those were my two areas because of camps I'd worked with, college I'd worked with. And then I, I, somebody saw me there. At leading worship at the camp and hearing my original stuff and inviting me to come down to a church in Florida. And so that became every year I was going back and forth to those two locations and sort of building a route in between those places. So I was able to make a living doing music. And then I was teaching guitar on the side, you know, at Chapman Music in Paducah, Kentucky. And um, so I was able to do that. So we have a very similar background in that area. Uh, but I think it's important for people to to know especially on the artist side of things that you don't have to live in Nashville or New York or wherever and be able to make a living. Right. You know, and as much as we talk about how you really do need to be here as on the artist side of things, there are ways around that. So yeah. Talk, no, and this, look, this could that. be a five hour podcast series because <laughs> there's just so much here, but you're exactly right. All right. I'm not sure where to start, but let me say this as kind of a, of a hook. I probably make less money mm-hmm. here than I did in my best days there, but some of that's because of the economy of the music business. Yeah. All right. Um, I will say that, and again, that's a lot of the ground has shifted so much un- underneath us 
in the 25 years I've been doing this that some of what I'm going to say may not be perfectly applicable. But I will say this. The linchpin you're talking about is the artist versus the songwriter. And you're right. Yes. If you're going to be doing stuff that serves other musicians, mm-hmm. be where the musicians are. If you're going to be doing some, something that serves fans, it doesn't matter. Right. Right? Um, that's kind of the way I would... That's the dividing line, I think. And I moved here not because I didn't want to do this stuff for fans anymore, but because as I was getting older and you know got more children and stuff, I didn't want to be traveling as much. And so, and I didn't want to be public as much. I didn't want to be like, okay, I got to go on the internet and show my face and sell my stuff and you know whatever. I didn't want to worry about that stuff as much because again, that that had shifted. You know, when I was twenty five. There wasn't any internet going on, and so you just made records, and there was internet, but it wasn't like now, you know? Right. There was no YouTube, right? I guess social media is the big the mm-hmm. big di- difference between, between, between then and now. But I came here because I wanted my job to be more passive income and less grind, you, you, you know? Right. And, um, and so that's the big, the big di- difference, but I, I will tell you this, establishing a tribe of true fans... If you are an independent musician or even a musician period that is trying to have like an artist presence, that's everything. That is the whole thing is you getting people to be interested in what you do. There's an article that was released years ago, like a blog. I don't remember who wrote it, but it's called A Thousand True Fans. Go look it up. It's amazing. But it basically just proposes this idea that if you give fans reasons to spend money on you and they're true fans, they will. And, and, and if you honor them for wanting that, you know, by giving them quality things, they will do it. And you don't need thousands and thousands of fans to pull that off because they'll spend a hundred bucks a year on you if you give them a chance to, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's a longer story, but the point is, for me, the difference was in, in Texas, traveling the country, I didn't, I wasn't trying to like service other musicians. I, I was getting cuts here and there, but I wasn't trying to do that. I was trying to keep my fans happy and they don't care where you live right because 90 percent of your gigs are flight gigs right. so it didn't it didn't matter am i answering the question yeah I don't know. absolutely so okay so let's talk about that you just mentioned something that it's interesting in texas you're out being an artist but you just said that you were starting to get some cuts here and there right okay so let's talk about that you're in texas doing the artist thing you're writing your own songs how are people hearing about you and starting to record your songs on their albums. How's right. that connection and, starting to happen? And I'll be the first person to, 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 to admit, my story has plenty of disappointments and, oh, Ross, that, that's unfair that that, ha- that, that that happened to you. But on the other side of it, I have stuff like this, where when I worked at that breakaway thing, and I was at the you know, second or third largest college in the United States, Texas A&M, and I'm at a Bible study that's the, it's the biggest Christian thing at that college, and we started making albums started making records and releasing songs. And so those songs would go in the hands of that college student in an actual, in their actual hand, because it was like a, you know, it was, it was a hard copy. And then they would go home to wherever that that they lived and take that Mm -hmm. and say to their worship pastor, Hey, here's a song you probably haven't heard. Cause again, this is like pre Bethel Hill songs, all that stuff. Um, This is a different world, you know, than than that. So they're, Oh, cool. This is a quality song. Cause Looking back, I was I was who I'm I was going to be who I am now, right? So I was writing decent songs. Right. right. I mean, not to be braggy, but I was yeah. I'm a songwriter. So I, back then, I was already becoming that person, and I was writing, trying to write high quality songs. So we were releasing these songs, and they were going all over the 
country. So I would get one of my favorite kind of like anecdotes of that time period was there was like a 10 year period where the statutory rate for a mechanical license, which if you listen to this podcast, you probably know what, what those terms mean, but was 8.3 cents mm-hmm. per unit sold. All right. So for every song that, that, that was sold for a buck, you got 8.3 cents. So I, there was like 10 years of my life where I would get piles and piles of $83 checks because some ministry in Kansas City or whatever would say, our college student brought this record from, from Breakaway and it has this song I'd never heard. And we recorded a version of it and we we're going to make, make a thousand units, right? Because that's where mm-hmm. the price break, that's yeah. where the price break is, you know? And then this summer camp's going to do a, a, a thousand units. And then this would, so I was getting a lot, like I had a, a decent income from that, nice. 83 bucks a pop, yeah. which you, you know, now is not as much, is not as like shameful as it. <laughs> 83 bucks a pop isn't so bad, right? right. Sadly. We give anything for that now. Exactly. Right? right. So, um, so I had a ton of that. And of course that resulted in more CCLI and I fully owned those songs, right? These are like hardly ever co-written. I had all the pub on them. You know, so it's a so that eight point three cents, I get all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that's that kind of sent me out, and of course, over time, some of those checks were larger than than eighty three dollars because some of those were more than a thousand units, you know, and then just kind of the word gets out, and so I would get calls from those ministries occasionally. Hey, we're working on a record. Do you have any songs? Do you want to come write with us? That okay. kind of stuff. So nice. it was mostly worship that yep. was doing that. I would say it was ninety five percent worship stuff which ironically i'm not a great worship writer now like i'm just okay at it i much prefer a pop song or a ccm type song but yeah that's that's really the way i kind of got introduced to like publishing and cuts and you know ccli and chasing down your 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 royalties and such yeah so i know that you're assigned to centricity publishing now here in nashville um did you sign with a publishing company like when you start getting those cuts in college and these, you know, you're starting to get these $83 checks all the time. Um, obviously, you knew what BMI and ASCAP and CSAC, the PROs were. Uh, you're, if you're getting checks, those things are starting to take to happen. So, Well, and this is interesting. And you say that I probably didn't know what those things were. Like one of the weirdest things about making a living in the music business outside of one of those major hubs that you mentioned is that you don't really know. And you're kind of too afraid to ask, or you don't even know who you should ask. Right. Like, I remember calling ASCAP to ask if I could become a member or whatever. And every second or third question they asked me, I had to be like, I don't even know what, what you're talking about. Right. Like, I remember my, my first pub deal, I wanted to exclude an older song of mine from like a Schedule A, which Schedule A, for people who don't know, is like when they pull in old songs from your catalog for your pub deal and say, we'd like a piece of this, even though we, you wrote it before the term. Okay. And I remember I, um, I wanted to exclude it. And the conversation with my publisher, it's my first ever pub deal got so weird because he didn't believe how like dumb I was. I kept asking questions and he was like, are you playing dumb? Like, come on, you've been a musician for 20 years. And I'm like, listen, if you don't, I promise I'm not playing dumb. If you don't live here, I mean, Marty, there's probably thousands of dollars I never collected because I didn't know what I was doing. Sure. Right. Yep. Um, and I, and I, all of us have done that. Right. For sure. <laughs> but I, this is 20 years of, I'm commercial, I'm making commercially, I'm making air quotes, commercially viable music for 20 years. 
not really knowing what publishing is, not really knowing what admin or any yeah. of that stuff is. So, so I, I didn't know a lot of those things. And I remember when I finally got here and learned all that stuff, I was like, I, <laughs> I called up a bunch of people that I had come up with in, in Texas and said, Hey, all those conversations we had about publishing, I can tell you what all that stuff means now. Cause mm -hmm. I didn't, and I, I literally wanted to host like a free <laughs> web webinar for my friends and be like, I finally get what publishing is. And I was 40 years old by this time. Yeah. You know, I did not know what any of that stuff was. And I finally now do, uh, now I know more than I want to know. Right. But, but yeah, it, it's, it is, there's a really, you could do a whole podcast on what it's like to be a professional working musician who isn't in Nashville, LA or, 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 in, or New York and how different their perception and even how different their sort of like career guardrails are, you know, like what are they, what they can and can't do, what they should or shouldn't do. You know, it's crazy. So when you, um, yes, and we need to have that conversation. <laughs> it's uh, not today. We can, you and I can have that conversation, uh, do another podcast or bring yeah. in a group of, maybe a group of us. And we should do, and that. do that. That sounds fun. Um, so when you finally get to Nashville, I'm assuming you've signed your first publishing deal here in Nashville. Is that, did you decide to move here at that point? Like what was that? So let's walk us through. Yeah. Yeah. Great. What, what made you decide to come to Nashville to begin with? Finally? Right. So I, um, there was a woman named Cindy Wilt who was very beloved in this town. She had been a, uh, a, a, a VP of, of publishing at word for years. She consulted and did some management of people. She kind of discovered, some folks like Matthew West and some other folks. She's she's she was amazing. She passed away a few years ago of cancer. But but Cindy and I met. I was doing. I had gotten into uh, programming like instrumental music, which is funny because I'm kind of a I'm more more of a lyric guy. But but I just had gotten Ableton Live and got gotten interested in programming instrumental music. Um, there's a crazy long story, but I was trying to make a record for my kids, and I wanted to make it all with MIDI and I'd never done that. So I just experimented and learned how to use Ableton to do, to do MIDI stuff and made this record. Well, in the process of doing so, my practice runs of using MIDI were making instrumental music. So I'd gotten into this kind of like, I'd found some like small A&R, indie A&R people who would promote indie music to B-level cable shows and stuff, right? So I was at a conference where a lot of people were, were getting together who were indie people doing stuff like this. And Cindy was a like a kind of a breakout speaker there. Yeah. And there was this lunch where you could pay a hundred bucks and sit at this lunch and every ten minutes you'd get like a speed dating situation mm -hmm. with a bunch of people who were yep. famous. Or not famous, but influential. And Cindy showed up at the last second of that lunch with when the time was running out and looked over at at, at me and was like, Hey, I think I know you. And we had had she when she'd been at Word, I'd written some songs with other word writers that I had known. And so she had bumped into my whatever there. And so of course the whole table's like, Oh great. This guy knows this person, you know, he's ruining it for, for the rest of us. And so the time ends and she's like, let's talk. So she was just starting a consulting development artist, writer development thing at, at the time. It was like, Hey, I'm looking for clients. Can I kind of beta test on you? I'll give you a discount and we can try this out. And so I was like, sure you know, longer story, I sent her music and stuff and she, whatever. So that was 2010 or so. And she started getting me rights out here and I was okay. still in Texas. So I would fly out every 10, 12, 15 weeks and have a five day 
you know, two a days, all that stuff where I'm writing and I'm having, you know, lunches with publishers and A&R people and all that stuff. Is she setting all this up for you? She's setting up, you know, and as it goes, I'm getting more of my own context, but she's doing it and that's part of my payment. And I'm, she's sending me briefs and she's listening to my music and, and, and giving me critiques and all that. It was, it was invaluable. I think it was like 150 bucks a month and it was just invaluable. And sometimes I get really sad, obviously the fact that she passed away, but just knowing that I owe her a bunch of like money probably, you know, I mean, or something because she, you know, she did, she did so well. So anyway, at some point in that process, um, my church, I, I was, I was on part time at a church I, I had planted and they gave me a, a, uh, a three month, uh, sabbatical. And for that three month sabbatical, they suggested that I come here if I could. And so I found a friend who need, who needed, who was doing a couple months of youth camp work. And he said, do you want to house it? So my family and I moved out here for 10 weeks and we house that. And I wrote every single day, you know, five days a week. And by the end of that time, I had three publishing offers, wow. you know, because when you're writing that hard, you know, yeah. I was on sabbatical, so I was paid. I just wrote, 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 you know, which there's something to be said for that, that if you can write every single day and yeah. just, you know, and of course, Cindy was curating all that and, you know, kind of get me all those rights and I'm building relationships and suddenly I'm not just, and this is back to our conversation about, you know, being here. Suddenly I'm running into people at Starbucks, right? Yeah. This is the thing that happens. This is the reason that you need to be in Nashville. Yes. If you're not pursuing the artist side of things. Yes. As a songwriter, publisher, A&R, yeah. producer, whatever, this is where it comes and, in needing yes, to be Yes. And if you were, the artist thing would work too if you wanted to be signed. I just never yes. did. Right. Yes. yes. But you're right. I mean, it just it just changed everything. So by the end of that time, I had three pub offers from uh, what was then Brentwood Benson, which is no longer a company, Word, uh, before it was Word Curb or Curb Word, and Fairtrade, um, which was merging with Simpleville, owned by Mercy Me. Long story, it doesn't matter. But I signed, ended up signing with Fairtrade, and strangely, um, I signed in April of 2012. And in May of 2012, my dad died in this accident. And I was like, literally like just starting to work with them. And I remember thinking, oh man, I'm like, I started getting depressed and some other stuff was going on in my life that just kind of cratered. And I remember telling my publisher, Mark, Mark Nicholas at, at the time at, at Fairtrade, hey, <laughs> you signed me a month ago for a three-year deal. I may not be the person that you signed now. <laughs> and I apologize, you know, if I'm not. But anyway... Uh, so I wrote for Fair Trade for a couple of years, and a couple of years into that, I realized every time I go out to, to Nashville, when it goes well, it's like a good news, bad news thing, because someone's like, hey, that went great. Can you write again next week or in two weeks or in a month? And I'd be like, no, I don't live here. And they, you know, people weren't really doing Zoom rights. They were doing some Skype stuff, but it wasn't a thing like it is now. And so I would be like, oh, man, that's hard because I just had a great week writing with someone. And they, and, it, and, and you know this, and some of your listeners may know too, but when an artist is writing, sometimes it's you meet them at the end of their album cycle. And so they're like, hey, I'm turning in the final stuff in the next month. And so if you have a m- momentum with them, you want to write three times that month. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, and so I would often like write with somebody. It goes well. But by the time I'm going to come back, their album cycle's done. And so I just remember coming home after one of the trips and saying to my wife, I either probably need to quit doing this um, or I, you know, quit going out there or we, or we need to move there. Because um, another side story is that 
at some point in there, I looked at my numbers with Fair Trade, and I was making money back from cuts, but my travel budget, which was also part of my recoup, was eating all that. Mm. So I remember being like, wait, my numbers are what? I was so mad that I wasn't recouped. And they were like, yeah, that's just your travel. Like, you're making your money back. And I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. So that's uh, 2015. We I moved from the town I'd been living in for 43 years and came here. Wow. That's and the amazing. rest is history, Marty. Look at you. Now you're sitting in this mansion on that golden chair that I let you <laughs> right. sit on. And <laughs> so, okay. So you got your right for for fair trade for a couple of years. Now, now you write for Centricity, right? Music publishing. Yeah. Um, after that first, um, after the first deal with fair trade. fair trade, did you resign with them, or did you decide at that point when that when that deal was up to pursue a different situation. So this it gets into kind of the weeds of inside baseball publishing stuff, but this is the stuff that people want to okay, know about. Okay, great. Though. Well, then I'll say this. I had a 1 plus 2, which means that when you sign a publishing deal, everything is sort of in their they say it's a partnership, it's even, but come on. They they control everything in in terms of options. So what happens is you get a 1 plus 2, which is what I what I got and it means we have you for a year. And we have two more times that we can decide to keep you or not. Okay. You don't get to have the option until the third year is up if we use all the years. But for two more years, we can say we, we want to we keep you. So at the end of those three years, I hadn't recouped. I had just moved here at the end of those three years. With fair trade. To, with fair trade. And I had not recouped because of all that travel stuff. So um, I had a chance to get out, but... I owed them money and I kind of felt like I want to make this money back for them. And no one else was offering me, you know, I didn't look to be fair and I probably should have, but no one else was offering and fair trade was great. I'm not trying to pick on them. I'm just saying that's what was going on. So I re-signed with them for another one plus two and a year into that one, I recouped. I had a couple of cuts that just kind of popped and I recouped my whole deal and I full disclosure, nothing. It's fair trade. I wanted out after that. And when my options came up, they didn't. They did not allow me out. Um, and so, at the end of the second, so the fifth year, I finally said, "Look, I fully recouped. Other publishers are interested in me. I'd like to try a different place. Love you guys. It's been great. But it's you know, I want to try. I want to try some something else. And I and I've been building relationships a lot with Centricity. So um, I they 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 let me out, and it was mutual great you know friendship I'm, I'm very good friends with with the people at, at fair trade um had breakfast with with those guys a lot so i went to centricity after five years at fair trade and have been there since okay um so let me ask you this what is it that makes somebody you've signed a publishing deal you've been with them for a couple of years few years whatever you're getting cuts you're recouping you're making money yes what makes a writer want to leave a publishing company that you're making money with to go work with an, another publishing company? Like just in, in general, is there something that specifically that makes somebody want to do that? Because like, do you know that they're going to offer you more of something, you know, or yeah. like, 
Does that make sense? Yeah, and I want to be careful that, that I don't sound like I'm picking on on no, fair not, trade. No, I'm just talking about just yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in general. What in general. It, what makes right, someone right. in general want to do uh, well, that? Well, okay, so I will say what 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 I'll answer your question both from what Ross likes and from what I think a person generally would 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 want. For okay. me, I'm a high change per- person, and I had just built relationships at. I was getting a lot of cuts at Centricity. Um, with because you're writing artists. with because yes. you're writing with their writers. Bun- yes, I had a bunch and their artists. I had a lot of relationships with their artists. Okay. somehow more than fair trade. Okay, and so that felt kind of strange. And I and I and I kind of thought, is Centricity going to stop wanting to give me stuff as much if I stay here? Um, and I didn't have as much to to lose in that regard with fair trade because I hadn't gotten a bunch of fair trade cuts. So um, there's that, and I just like change. Um, but I, but I think there's also, you know, what would make someone want to leave is just to say, Hey, I've talked to the writers at my company and this other company and the writers at the other company seem to act like the grass is greener there. And sometimes you're just wrong. Mm -hmm. But I, I think in this town, and I'm sure you know this with a lot of songwriters, we do bounce around a lot because I think we just want to see okay, I've had one publishing deal and this is how it's been. I wonder what it's like there, you know? Because these these different companies have different re- reputations for how they do things. And they have different methods of doing it. Like, like some companies say, we send all our artists to our writers first. And some companies say, we just pick the best songs. We, do, we don't really care. Some companies have really fancy songwriting camps and writing retreats. Some companies are better at sync and... And worse at this, some companies have a country guy, some companies, do, you know, some companies sure. ha- have an L.A. branch where you can go out to L.A. and do stuff. So there's just a bunch of like shopping around stuff. Um, and 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 because songwriting isn't a salaried kind of kind of a, a, a position, it's usually an, an advance that you recoup. It's not like you're leaving one company and worry about getting a pay cut. It's not that. There's not a big loss unless you're making somebody mad, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, yeah, so, so for me, it was more just, I like change and I was close to centricity's people, um, and felt like I wanted to give that a shot, but there are definite, like you do this. I mean, you, you, Hey, what, what's your pub deal? Like, what's your admin? Like, what's it like working with that sync company? And we all ask those questions and occasionally someone will say, just a story that sounds awesome. And you'll think, Oh, I wish it was like that. I want to be a part of that. Right. And I think that's where most of it happens. I mean, Writers are, we can be kind of babies too, you know? And I think we get real like, well, my company doesn't like me and your company does, you know, whatever. And as you know, because it's a a handshaking, smiley town, you can be convinced that going over there, man, that guy seems like he's really cool. That that publisher, he's, you know, he, he really looks me in the eye when he talks to me and my company's not being that, you know, whatever. We can, we can just fall for that. So, Lots. Does that make sense? I mean, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I just wanted for our for the audience to to kind of have an idea of what what that means. Yeah, to sure. do that. Why would you do that? You know. So, uh, so that's super helpful. So now that you've been over at Centricity uh, for a while, and you've gotten a bunch of cuts. So this one of the things I wanted to kind of circle back to is we were talking about the American Idol and, and some of those things, and you're talking about you know. Well, maybe the artist that's on, or the, the performer that's on American Idol and those types of shows, maybe at some point they'll get signed and they'll need songs. They'll, maybe they'll pick my songs. Well, lo and behold, you have written for some of those artists that have been on American Idol and some of those types of shows, and mm-hmm. you've gotten to, they, those artists have now recorded your songs. And you write with those guys. Jordan Feliz is one of those, right. those guys. 
um, so hey, dream come true, right? Sure, sure. You know, that's cool. <laughs> so tell us real, just real quick, um, some of the artists that you have written for that people would know. Yeah, and let me just say this as a kind of a funny disclaimer. My resume, when you read the artists I've written for, sounds really impressive. But I've mostly written like deep cuts for these people. Like I don't have a bunch of hot radio, but but that doesn't matter. No, no, I know. Well, it matters. To I the, mean, it, it matters, matters to the money, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, it but is really cool. As far as the reputation, absolutely. Goes. No, no, and I'm just trying to be honest about sure. you know that. Um, but um, so Jordan Feliz, Jason Gray, Newsboys, uh, Kate Thompson's a new artist that I've had some stuff with. Um, let's see, We Are Messengers, um, Micah Tyler, uh, Johnny Diaz. Um, I mean, I, I could look now at my bio. Now we're just dropping names. Now I'm just dropping names, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, no, there definitely are some like bucket lists. I had a Shenandoah cut, and they were, they were big when I was a kid, uh, you know. So I and, love Shenandoah. I mean, you know, it was a record that nobody bought, but yeah, here at the end of their year, but at the end of their career, but but I had a blast doing it, Still. you know. And, and uh, yeah, so I've, I've, I've definitely got stuff that, I can show you on paper and you'd be like, Oh my gosh, you know, that's, yeah. that's incredible. You know, and I'm grateful for it. You know, of course it's just that, you know, this being here, the veneer of some of that kind of, kind of gets scratched off when you, when you realize sometimes that a, a deep album cut is worth 200 bucks or something. Oh, see, that's where it hurts. Like, yeah. And I think people don't know that. that. That's like, I, I had a conversation with an A&R guy maybe six months ago, we were having breakfast and I won't say where this, any of these people are, but I was at an, at a breakfast with this friend of mine who's an A&R to major publisher, a major record label, Christian. And, and I was writing with one of his artists that day. And he said, oh, that's exciting. You know, and I said, well, kind of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he said, why? And I said, no, I'm grateful. But I've had, you know, five or six cuts with this, with this guy. And that's worth like 1200 bucks, you know. And he just was shocked you know, because he's been in the business a long time, and I think things have changed so much and so slowly that he doesn't realize how low a non non radio single cut on a major label project, how low the payout is for that. But you guys just got to remember, it's you know, it's ninety percent of the earnings from that are are streams, and those those numbers are so 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 tiny fractions of pennies because streams nowadays are always the singles that everybody buys and listens to way more than it is the deep cuts yes I'll, you know well yeah yeah exactly so his true fans streamed that thing right you know but i mean look uh, uh, uh you know 20 million streams if you're a co-writer with a pub deal is a couple thousand bucks yeah you know, three or 4,000 bucks tops. You know, that's what that's worth. Yeah. 20 million streams. That's what that's worth. And people don't realize that. And, and obviously, you know, no one's putting a gun to our head and making us do this job. So I'm not going to complain about <laughs> it. But, but that's just me being real. You know, I don't want to be like cynical or grumpy. I'm, I love what I do. Yeah. I love but what I, be, I do. I want to be honest because yes, this, this is yes. the kind of information that I want the audience to understand. Right. And if anything, telling you those numbers and saying, I'm still doing this tells you how much fun I'm having. Right. Like, I love what I do. It's very rewarding. But if you get into this thinking, like I, I will say this, there was, there was a three or four year period where I was getting 30 cuts a year, which I don't brag. I'm just saying that's the number that I was getting of like, well, that's a bunch. Other, it's a lot. That is a lot. And a couple of those years, I didn't even recoup a very, very small advance from that. Right. Out of 30 or 40 cuts. Out of 30 or 40 cuts, because yeah. none of them, none of them were big singles. Right. And then, and as you know, like, that a couple of those same years, I'd get five or six sync placements, and those five or six 
would be worth more than the 23, 24, 25 CCM cuts. Mm-hmm. You know, so five or six sink placements earned me more than 25 sink cuts if they weren't big r- radio singles right. or CCLI. Right. And that's why that's part of why I mean sync is really fun, but that's part of why I get into it. You know, pe- people like you and I, when we write a sync song, we're not pouring our faith into that. We're not giving it a bunch of our heart necessarily. We we it's songwriting, but we're not like, you know, it's a different type of yes. It's a it isn't form necessarily as passion project ish, yeah. right? And so, it, it, and it's still craft. It's a lot of fun, right? But but it's but I explain to people part of why you write sync is to kind of cleanse your palate, you know, of all that, and because. When a sync cut fails or doesn't land, I'm not going to cry about it because it's not like this is a story of my serious walk through depression where Jesus rescued me. You know, it's right. not it's not that kind of song, right? Yeah. So, whereas it's it's harder, you know, one of the great emotional roller coasters of my job is getting 30 cuts and the win of that, the psychological win of, oh, cool, that's amazing. And then you see the check. And it's sort of it's, it's this weird little like good news bad news thing where you're like, man, I'm killing it in the on paper, you right. know. In my numbers are because what I I brought all that up earlier to to say when I was 30, 30 cuts a year was a was a good, really good uh, income. Mm-hmm. And so if you'd ask me, hey, Ross, you know, 2010 Ross in 2000, you know, 20, you're gonna get 30 cuts in CCM. What do you think your life would be like? And I'd be like, oh, I'll be rich. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll be just yeah. rich. And it was true then. That was true. Even album cuts would have resulted in a decent amount of money. And it's just different now. Yep. So. Yeah, that doesn't. It, yeah, that just doesn't happen. Right. That way any longer. Right. Um. What are some of the pitfalls of? I know we talked about this a little bit before mm-hmm. we started actual recording. Just kind of you know the way that the musical world is right now and right. especially in CCM. And, and again, we, you and I love CCM contemporary for people who don't know what we're talking about. Contemporary Christian music. That's the world that we live in. Yes. Worship music and as an artist and things like that. Um, but it's not always, and this is true for all genres. This is not just CCM, but again, this is kind of the world that we live in the most. Um, but I know you and I have had a couple of conversations where, you know, it's harder. It's harder than maybe it should be, yeah. if that's the right way to say it. Um, like, can we talk about that a little yeah. bit? And when you say it, you you mean making a living as a sort of a songwriter who's not doing an artist thing? Well, either either that, or maybe you're doing because you and I are both songwriters and artists. Right. We're, we're trying. We do both. Sure. Right. Um, and one of the reasons that we have multiple streams of income, you and I both do this. We're, you and I are a very similar right. sort of parallel path, I feel like, a lot of times, mm-hmm. um, is that we have to do multiple things in the music world to make a living at it. Right. You know. Um, well, you know, I think part of it is that in, in our minds as young musicians, we kind of think, here's what I'm good. You kind of itemize what, what you're good at. And you and you and you assume that if I master that thing, that thing will make income, and that'll be the thing I do. And that's true to an extent if you're like the top one percent or something, right, or the one percent of the one percent. But I think for most of us, you just got to do a bunch of things well. You know, I have this, I have this concept concept that I talk about a lot with people 
who are talking about music business where I talk about flu shots. And and this this is a little bit different now that we've contextualized the world around COVID, but but you know, during flu season, your doctor gives a bunch of flu shots. And it's not because they love it or even what they really really went to school for. They're just they're just certified to do it and they can do it, but they could teach you or you or me to stick a needle in, in, in someone and give them this vaccine or whatever. Right. So, but they also can do surgery. They can do complicated things that they probably would get a bigger charge out of. And I think all of our careers have flu shots, you know, where it's like, this is a thing I can do and it's not passionate, but it helps people and it serves this one purpose. Right. And, and, and so I think a lot of times you get to figure out what your flu shots are and what your surgeries are, you know, and, and find ways to not hate giving, not hate giving flu shots, and 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 hopefully not find ways to to where all you're doing is flu shots, right? But but for me to make that metaphor make sense, you know, songwriting for artists in CCM would be surgery. I want to do that. That sounds awesome. It's it's cool and it's and it I can see the result of it and it's life changing or, or whatever, and it pays. Um, but I also need to do songwriting instruction uh, or guitar lessons or I need to do demos for artists who can't afford expensive de- demos or I need to do gigs that maybe aren't my favorite kind of gigs or, or whatever and all of that stuff those are the flu shots those are the flu shots and 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 I'm grateful for that stuff yeah, right because absolutely. there are a lot of people who wish they got that right and you and I yeah. like we don't want to be complaining about stuff that other folks wish they could do and so it, but it's just there's that balance of I, I I think the sort of worst case scenario of of what I'm la- what I'm laying out is you're so exhausted by flu shots that you're no longer able to do surgery well. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm so exhausted doing other things that are not creatively satisfying and life changing. The next thing you know, my I look at my calendar for the week and it's you know eighty percent stuff that I'm not even unique, uniquely gifted to do. I just can do and makes a little bit of a dollar or whatever. Um, and then 20% of the week is actually doing the thing I moved here to do and that I feel excited about doing, right? Mm-hmm. And and so what I'm constantly trying to do, and this is taking me way too long and I'm way too old to not have it figured out yet, is reduce the number of things like that that that, that pull my energy and my, you know, the, all of a sudden I'm exhausted from doing this this other thing that doesn't, that isn't passive, that isn't long-term, that isn't, you know, it's not exciting to me. And maintain that, hey, I'm also not digging ditches in Haiti. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> None of these things are awful. They're all okay. But I don't like that occasionally I'm too tired to say yes to a good songwriting opportunity. Or I say yes to it, but I'm too tired to do well because mm-hmm. I'm doing some something else. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure you have those things in sure. your life. Is that making sense? Am Absolutely. I- yeah. yeah, I mean, we all do stuff, and that that relates not only in music. I mean, that's just across the board Absolutely. in life. We're all we all do things that we don't necessarily enjoy, but it pays the bills, right? And it's it provides a living for your family. And uh, and I say all the time, the most important thing for me to be successful, what I consider success in music as a part of this business, is if I can provide for my family, if I can pay the bills and provide for my family to make yes. a, and make a living that takes care of them then I'm successful. Now, years ago, <clears throat> for me to be successful was to, I was going to be on stage 
in front of tens of thousands of people in a right. stadium and, you know, or theaters or whatever it was and touring and have a tour bus and have a band and lights and the whole, the whole thing, you know, all that, all those things that go along with that, that we see and that we read about. And that's what you, you know, when you're a kid, that's what you're like, oh man, I want to do that. Right. That's the most visible, visible example of exactly play the guitar and sing. Exactly. that guy. Right. Right. And so when those things don't happen to that degree, you're, you feel let down. Right. You're like, or I didn't accomplish that. I failed, you know, and it's not true. Right. And, you know, and I've had to fight that in my own life to think, okay, you know what? I didn't, ha- I don't have to be that. I still get to go out and I still get to tour. I still get to play shows and I still get to have an audience. My audience ranges from sometimes it's eight or 10 people. Sometimes it's a few thousand people. I've played for 15, 20,000 people before and it's amazing. I've played for 20 people and sometimes that's even more amazing right. than it is for the 20,000 people you got to play with, you know, because it's more impactful because you're, you're, more intimate and there's all different scenarios of those types of things and the numbers the percentages on the 20 who will buy your stuff and engage you as a fan the ratios are way better sure you know yeah. you, you play for 20 you can get 15 of those people to actually love it right you play for 20,000 you're not gonna get 15,000 that love you probably. right yeah most likely um, so there's that aspect of it as a from the artist side of things quote unquote now from the songwriter side of things you know um You've had a lot of, you've had way more success as a songwriter than I have because you got that publishing deal where you're writing with, you know, Newsboys or Jordan Feliz or, you know, Michael English. I think, did you write for Michael English? He recorded a song. Oh, okay. So, um, you know, just this huge list, like you said, on paper, it's very impressive. Yeah. And you didn't let me finish. I could have gone for hours already (laughs) bragging about people that I. (laughs) Right. So, but yeah, so on paper, like you said, it's very impressive, but then maybe financially it's not as much as you think it should be or that you hope it should be. And the business has changed so much in the past 20 years, Mm -hmm. you know, 20, 25 years that what we expect or, or what people nowadays that are coming up in the industry expect is different than what people back in the 90, 80s and 90s would have, you know, have lived through. And now they've seen the decline and they've lived through that. And now new artists and new songwriters, they don't know that life or that world. You and I were in that sort of transition where we saw that. Yes. And maybe experienced it to some degree and then have had to live the majority of it in where we are now. Right. You know, and it's a two different worlds. Well, and and as CCM is, is sort of infamous for, they realize that change later than everyone else did Mm -hmm. and so their response was more dramatic and more shocking and what I mean is this when I was coming out here working with Cindy before I got signed I was writing with songwriters who I still know some of whom are no longer even signed and I don't mind saying dollar amounts because I'm I'm not mentioning anybody's names but they were getting $90,000 in a three year you know pub deal thirty thousand dollars a year in advances and those advances were irrespective of if you made it back like in other words if you had a three-year deal every year in january one you got a thirty thousand dollar check or whatever you know if it's monthly or whatever right? right and so those people would but that was at the tail end of it making money so there are a lot of pub deals unrecouped to the tune of like 40 50 60 80 thousand dollars i signed two years later three years later and my advance was ten thousand dollars mm. I mean, so it it dropped, you know, to a fraction of what it was because they were all like, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. They kind of realized too late 
as the, as again because again I I think CCM is late, but also our fans are late. So probably our fans bought music longer than the general market did. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. I still sell CDs whenever I go do shows. I prefer CDs. Me even too. Now, way yeah. way more. Yeah, but that's not the way that most of the world works, yeah. right? So so I think. Part of this was just the shock of I had friends I'm writing with that are getting 30, 40 grand a year. Um, and, and, and again, their deals, and again, not to get too far into the weeds, but their deals were your advance comes every year as long as you have a deal. Well, now most deals at our at CCM level are at the end of the year, we look at what you've made back and we don't give you another advance unless you've made it back or we give you, or we split the difference or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, you, you go from deals where somebody could, could $30,000 a year, you know, if you're frugal can be a, you know, a, a decent portion of an income for a songwriter, $10,000 a year. That's hilarious. You know, that's not even, that's a, that's a month and a half at the most of my bills. Right. So, so it's just a different kind of a world, um, by a long shot than it was then. And we were around for both of those worlds Mm -hmm. and the change happened quickly in terms of the actual payouts. The, the undercurrent of it happened slowly, but that change happened relatively quickly. And so a person could have been fooled, you know, a person named Ross King could have been fooled to move here thinking he was going to make a bunch of money. (laughs) You know, I, I know I'm saying that's true, but, but it was shocking to me when I got those 30 cuts a year, a couple years in a row and realized, Oh, if they're not radio, if they're not big charting radio singles, this doesn't make any money. That was a shock to me. Yeah. So what do you tell the audience? It's somebody who's wanting to, who, who's a songwriter, who's wanting to get a publishing deal now, like what is your advice for yeah. that? Yeah, no, I love it. Um, I always say, I always start with this. Tell me what you want. Like take it out of all the... Take it out of inside baseball. Tell me what you want out of your life and career. And then let's talk about if a publishing deal accomplishes that, right? Because if it's, well, I want, like 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 for me, the reason why I have a publishing deal and haven't like quit doing that is because I'm not very organized, I'm not a good networker, and I hate admin. So I a publishing deal accomplishes that. They organize things for me. They chase down the money. They help with my calendar. They add men for me. They network for me. I still have to do some of that, but I'm saying they they hold my hand. If I had said, I want a publishing deal because that's how you get cuts. Well, that's not, that isn't true. That is not true. Publishing deals don't get you cuts. Now, I shouldn't, they, they don't guarantee you cuts, right? Um, because as you probably know now, that is one of many gatekeepers for any number of things that that make money, right? So a publisher is one of your gatekeepers. You write a song, they hear it, we like it, we don't like it. But if they love it, then they maybe go to the to the if it's a sync thing, then it's a little bit fewer gatekeepers. They'll go directly to the music supervisor or, or the director of the show or the director of the commercial or, or ad agency or whatever it is. But if it's a CCM thing or a country thing or a pop thing, the publisher likes it. Next step is does the A and R or the artist like like it, you know. The and the publisher is going to take the song to the to the A and R, the artist, and they both have to like it, both, because the A and R can push it, but if the artist hates it, or artist can love it, A and R can hate it, whatever. They both have to at least agree to it. Then the radio team of that label has to say, "We think this will be a good choice." 
If is it's it a radio. Before they record it? Not necessarily before they record it, but depending depending on their strategy. Are they trying to do radio singles? Are they trying to just get album oh, yeah, cuts? Yeah. But in today's 2021 20, world, they're going to start with, would it, be a, would it be a single? If not, they're going to put it in another sort of silo, another sort of subcategory and say, okay, this isn't a radio single, but we're going we're gonna to pay for you. We're going to help you to record this. Right, but we're gonna. There's an asterisk beside that because we know it can't make a whole a whole lot of money. Um, and they may have some other little sub thing like, oh, it's a Valentine's love song. We're gonna push real hard for Valentine's, whatever you know. But if it's not radio, they're they 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 push that off to to the side. If it is radio, then they say, does the radio team at the label like it? They think they can push it to radio. Well, then if they love it and you record it, you still got maybe somewhere along that process, the artist writes a better song. Or the producer that they're, that they're working with writes a song with them, and that producer wants to push their song on things, and that changes the whole tra- trajectory, right? And then you have, does the radio station want to play it? And then you have, is the public responding to it? So there's just all these, you know, there's seven or eight things there, right? So if you think a pub deal gets you through all those gates, do not think that, right? You, you your, your time is just as well spent getting to know artists, getting to know the, the record label folks, uh, you know, what, whatever else. So I just say a pub deal is helpful in all those things, but it is not. If you think a pub deal means cuts, that's not true. Does okay. that make sense? Yes. And that's not me downing my publishers. My publishers are awesome. That's me saying that's not really what they do. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of go into that a little deeper though, as far as you say, okay, that's not what a publisher is really, that doesn't guarantee cuts having a publishing deal. Right. But, for the most part, publishers are the ones who are pushing the songs to the artist and to the producers, to the A&R, to get them cut, to get an artist to record your songs. Mm-hmm. So if you're not signed to a publisher and they're not doing it for you, that means that you, as the songwriter, have to go try to build a relationship with an artist specifically. And let's be honest, we're not going to get in and to hang out with Tim McGraw Right. Or Michael W. Smith, just because, hey, I'm going to call him up and say, hey, I'm a songwriter and I want you to record my songs. Yes. You know, it, and we talk about this all the time. This, this business is a relationship business. We understand that. But, you know, we don't have, they're sort of gatekeepers to a certain Absolutely. extent. They can get your music to places and to people that you can't do normally on your own. Mm-hmm. So if you're not going to sign a publishing deal and they're not going to do it for you, how are you, how do you tell people how are you going to get your songs to either the producers or the artists so that you can do it yourself? Does that make sense? Sure. And and look, all these lines are really blurry because you could say, "Ross, tell me which cuts your publisher got you cut." And you could say, "Well, they arranged this first right with this artist, they, we wrote a song with that we didn't like. And then we wrote four more times. And then they, they introduced me to their best friend who's also an artist. And then I wrote a song that got cut and made a bunch of money. And you go, okay, well, the publisher didn't really do that, mm-hmm. but I sure. would have gotten there without the publisher. Right. So there's a lot of that stuff. But now we're also talking about, about a world where people are getting signed from TikTok and YouTube. Yeah. So, and I, you know, and you and I both can roll our eyes at that, but that's another kind of the voice American Idol situation yeah. where I can't do that. I I can scoff at it, but I don't have the whatever it is to go on YouTube or TikTok and convince people to buy my stuff. Or if I do have it, I don't want to try I don't I don't know about it and I don't you know. Yeah. Um and so it it they do that. They do help you. And if you're not going to have a publisher 
then yes, it's a different kind of work. And I guess theoretically it's harder. Um, but it's more to me that I see it as a certain kind of work, that there are traditional channels by which this stuff works. I, I have a friend, his name's Tyler Ward. He's kind of the original YouTube star in terms of uh, music stuff. Years and years ago, in like the first month of YouTube, he did a version of We Are the World right after there was this kind of remake of We, we Are the World. And he's just now this like, he's in his 30s now, so he's less cool, right, I guess. But he has a massive following. He's never signed a deal. He's never, he he's huge in Asia, mm-hmm. whatever. So there's, and Tyler just like had the sense to put his finger on the pulse and see this. And he's really talented, by the way. He's extremely talented. But most of his career has been covers. And he's a really good looking guy and very good on camera. And those things all matter, right? So, so there's all kinds of channels. And so I guess I would just say it's all like, I have a very unique, um, my common, my, my cocktail of skills is what it is. And that's partly that I write for other artists. It's partly that I have an artist career. It's partly that I lo- I like writing things like kid music, which kind of trained me to write sync music, you know, which influenced my artist career because I got hookier with my artist music, you know, mm-hmm. on and on and on to where if you took my entire royalty income, you would have kind of an 80-20 or a 90-10 type principle where 90% of that income is because I have a publisher. Or, sorry, not 90% of those songs are because I have, I, have, I have a publisher. But that 90% of the songs maybe only rep- represents 30 or 40% of the income. And then the 10% of the songs represents a lot more of the income, and it's stuff like, I knew the guy. Right. You know, like I have a song, uh, I, I won't talk a lot about because I, I don't, I don't want to jinx it, but I have a song that I wrote by myself that I did on my artist stuff that I wrote intentionally for me, ignoring all the CCM rules, and it's right now being talked about for being a radio single with a major CCM ar- artist, right? Okay. And if that happens, that's more money and more notoriety, more whatever else than I've had on anything I've had cut. And I wrote it outside of that system by myself, for myself, with zero regard for CCM, right? right. So you, But you can't predict that sure. at all, right? So it's just hard because, yes, a pub deal's great, and I'm so grateful, and I, don't, I hope they don't cut me yeah. <laughs> from my deal. But there are people who are awesome at this who don't need one. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at is don't feel like you have to have that mm-hmm. to make it. Because I have friends... I can think of two people right, right now who've just left their deals and are doing better now because their unique cocktail of s- skills mm-hmm. works well, for that. Does sure. that make sense? It does. I think, I think that part of that, the reason that, that writers like that, that you're talking about that have left their deals and are having more success on their own, I think part of the reason that they're having that success is because they've already established the relationships of course. with other writers and with artists. They know who they are, so they can get together with these people. And it's like, you know, it's not, it doesn't matter at that point. Yeah, and, and what you're implying is that how they wouldn't have gotten that far without the pub deal. And I agree. I'm simply saying that I'm not that kind of artist that would just leave a pub deal because sure. I'm worried about admin and organization and right. finding out that I forgot to sign something or send something in or yeah. missed an e- e- email, right? I just mean that again. I'm trying. I'm trying to say, Marty, is not that pub deals are bad. I'm trying to encourage people that if you have time and effort and wherewithal to chase down how to do this without it, do that as long as you can. Mm-hmm. 
because then you control and have autonomy and, and all that. But, but again, I start with when someone says, should I get a pub deal? Should I seek a record deal for my artist thing? I always say, what is it that you want? What, what's the outcome that you're looking for? Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about if a record deal gives you that outcome. Because you and I both know that a record deal in 1998 was a lot more essential to success than a record deal in 20 Sure, as an artist. As an artist. Yeah. And a pub deal, I don't know if that's true. But, you know, I always just make this joke that, you know, this, as, as weird as he is, this little Nas X story is kind of a classic example of Old Town Road happened pre-record deal. <laughs> that guy had no record deal when Old Town Road's hit, you know. Mm-hmm. And and how? I don't I don't know the exact ways that, you know, there's a bunch of algorithms that are at, at, at play in that story. But that happened without a record deal. Mm-hmm. I can only ima- imagine was a massive thing before Mercy Me got signed. When they got signed, it became a more massive thing. But it was doing great before that. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm and more just trying to encourage that it's possible. You, exactly, and and not to believe, believe the lie that these gatekeepers in the ivory tower control it all. Sure, because in the age of YouTube and TikTok and all that, they just don't. Yeah, as artists, you. The independent artist nowadays is way more successful, you know, YouTube and TikTok and all these, you know, platforms have just opened up the gamut for anybody, Absolutely. anybody, doesn't matter if you're talented or not, to right. be honest with you, but the ones that are really do have a lot of success. And, and we know that record labels, um, are always looking at artists who are on those platforms and they're assigning artists because they're having success on their own. Yes. That's really kind of like a main main way that that's done nowadays, I think. And it's like the voice American Idol thing. It's sort of the next step in that process. Yeah. That they got there this different way that you right. and I would maybe call a non-traditional way. Yeah. And it was American Idol and, 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 and the voice, and now it's moved to, oh, they're signing major label deals to TikTok and YouTube stars. Yeah. Um, as far as songwriting goes... I it's less true in that world. It's I, less true I in agree. that world for the traditional going to write for a country pop, c- Christian music, whatever. Absolutely. Um, now, in the sync world that you and I both live in, it is it is true. I own my own publishing. Right. I'm, I'm not signed to. I'm not currently signed to a publishing deal with a company um, where you are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I own my own publishing company. And so, you know, I can go to a sync agent or to a music supervisor directly and pitch my stuff. Yes. And if it gets placed somewhere, then I own all of my own publishing and my And writing. you have the negoti- negotiation power of saying, if you'll pitch this for me, I'll sign a one-off song deal and give you part of the pub if you'll if if it lands. You know, you you can do those things, right? Yeah. You have these sort of like, and that I think I think the one-off deal might be. Again, all this is relational, and some of your listeners have never even met a publisher that's any good. But the idea that you can take a great song to someone and say, this is a great song, and you and I both know it, and if you can land it, I'll, I'll let you have some. Right? That's kind of a middle ground, I think, between a pub, a traditional pub deal and a, just an indie. You know, And I have friends who, a lot of those friends I talked about were at Centricity or somewhere else and have left, but still come back and say... Hey, I wrote this song. You guys want a piece of this? Mm-hmm. Because then it motivates the publisher. You know, okay, I'm not. I'm not sure. I want to sign a, a long term deal with this person, mm-hmm. but this is a great song. So do and sign the one song. One song deal, and then they get a percentage of it if they land. 
if they land the placement. It. Sort of a, yeah. sort of a uh, what do they call it contingency, you yeah. know, where it if it lands, we will get money from this. Yeah. Yeah, and that and that entices them to push to yes. try to get it placed because and that's potentially Between me and you, I think those are going to get more and more popular. Yeah. I think one one song deals are going to continue to get more popular because it's a it's a win for both sides. The publisher doesn't have to like say, oh, "I got to take care of Ross or Marty for an entire year and worry about them or whatever." But they can say, this is a great song. I do think it'll land, and I'll push it hard knowing that I, the publisher, will make some money off of it if it does. And that's what a lot of your sync companies are doing is they'll take in, they're taking some master mm-hmm. from it, you know, for pushing it for you or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, this is so good. Like, we, I, we yeah, could no, just sit, too much. We could just sit and do this for hours. Yeah. I love, I love doing this stuff. This is going to be a six-part episode yeah mm. sometimes i end up breaking these into like a two-part episode but i don't think we're gonna have to do that it's just too have good I, have i missed anything that you really want to cover um no i don't think so um you know we we're talking just about the difficulties of yeah. of the business and i mean the one other thing i probably didn't say is that i always tell people be good at lots of stuff if you can be yeah and you this is your i mean you're you're a perfect example of this is that you 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 can you can do a vocal demo for someone. Just you're a good enough singer to, to just sing for someone. You're a really good player. You produce well. You write well. You can lead worship. You know, I mean, I have a friend named named Joel Vaughn who he he and his wife. He's a artist at Dream, which is a label, but it's not like a full label situation. It's a sort of non traditional. But Joel, like, he leads worship. His his artist career is more like CCM pop. He so he makes some money on his on radio because Dream pushes his radio, but he also has a shirt heat press where he makes his own t shirts. Yep, I did, and it. did it all. His <laughs> wife is an incredibly good, um, like lyric video graphics type person, so they do all their own of, of that stuff and do it for other people. You know, I mean, just on and on and on, you know. Yeah. And so Joel's one of those guys who I will call and say, How do you work this widget? and he always knows because he's mastered, I'll be good at lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I can do the thing that I want to do. Like back to the to the to the flu shots thing. But this is kind of the next step of oh, what if you can learn to enjoy a bunch of things? You know, right. like I do songwriting, coaching, and mentoring, and I really enjoy it. You know, and I'm glad to be doing it. But it's not it's not songwriting. It's yeah. just another level of it. You know. So I tell people, hey, if you want to make it in this business and you can tolerate a very broad and sort of unpredictable and inconsistent week of your career, you know, if you, if you don't mind any given week doing four or five different things, mm-hmm. then go for it. You yeah. know, I, I, I think the mistake is um, the drummer for Maroon 5 can just be a drummer. Right. Because it's Maroon 5. Yeah. Um, the drummer for probably a couple of really big CCM bands can just be the drummer. Most of the time, just being the drummer is not enough. Not because drummers are bad. I'm saying I'm picking on that. But any when you and I were kids... There were session guitarists in CCM making good money as session electric guitarists. Mm-hmm. And they played on, that one person played on pretty much everything. everything. There's a couple of guys that played Jerry on Jerry McPherson everything. and all those guys, yeah. they had Cartage, which if they don't know, they can go look up Cartage, but they had somebody who would cart their stuff in and bring their gear. Their gear was stored in a storage unit, climate controls, and every time that they had a session, this truck would pull up and bring all this gear out, and Jerry would just walk in. There'd be a big case full of guitars and, and amps and pedals. And he'd get paid several hundred dollars for that session and do that every single day of the week and make better money than you and I make for doing one thing. Now, they did it really, really, really well. Yeah. But mostly, I would say, the age of a session musician 
who just does session work is probably close to being done. I mean, that's over for, for the most part. For most people, yeah. yeah. Unless you're unless you're the the musician who's still in it. Like if you've been in it for a long time, you're going to probably have that right for the rest of your life right. for the most part. But anybody right. that's kind of where we are or, or right. coming up underneath us, that's that's going away. I tell people there are three ways to be really successful in the music business. If you're in the 1% of the 1%, which none of us can control, that's, you know, you are just that talented or some kind of a thing happens where you just, you know. Uh, and all this excludes just God does it, okay? But, you know, on practical level, 1% of the 1% in your talent, you know, you're the best bass player in the world, whatever. Two, you're a part of something big. So you're a part of Hill Songs and it gets big. You're a part of Mercy Me, it gets big. And third is do lots of stuff. <laughs> Be good at lots of things. And yep. that's the world you and I have chased is that yep. we 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 call ourselves singers and songwriters and musicians, and that's mostly it. But there's a bunch of little tiny subcategories in there that are monetized at varying levels to make us have a a decent income. Yeah, and that's and that's where I'm always telling people that's that's where most people nowadays have to live. You yeah. have to gig do, economy, right? You, yeah, you have to do lots of things to to say that you make a living in music, right. and there's nothing wrong with that. No. I think it's trying. It's trying to take. I don't know if it's a stigma. I don't know. That's probably not the right word. Um, you know, but just trying to get people to understand it's okay to do lots of things. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that. It's like you know, you don't have to be just a singer or just an artist or just a songwriter. Those are things that <clears throat> those are the things that we've always strived to be. And what most people strive to be, because that's that's the assumption, right? Right, but it's not the reality, right? And it's it's um back to my question of what do you want? If you want, if you say, well, I want to do is just write songs. So I'd say, okay, you're gonna get the best pub deal, try to get the best pub deal that you can get at the best label you can get, the best company. Because if you're just gonna write songs, you better be like amazing at it and have amazing team and all that. Mm-hmm. And it, and if that's the case, I'm gonna warn somebody. Okay, let me hear let me hear your songs. Let me you know. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'm like, no, I want to make music, and I want to spend time at my at my home with my family. And I have a you know a list of currencies that I'm trying to you know get. And you're the, and and you're the same you're the same way. And so for my specific desires, a pub deal is a good, good and right choice. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It may not be that way for everybody. Yeah. What would you tell people? Someone listening that is wanting to be a songwriter, they're wanting to get a, a publishing deal. Um, how do you approach a publisher at this at this stage in life? You know, this is your like you you haven't signed one yet. Like this is your first time you're trying to get one. How do you tell somebody to reach out and to contact a publisher and to make that initial contact? You know, I'm not sure honestly to answer how to answer that question because I never had to do that. Um, in the sense that I never like showed up in someone's inbox, you know, unprovoked and said, give me a pub deal or here's my great song. I was able to, there were go-betweens. And I would say if there are go-betweens like my Cindy Wilt situation, there are people who, and you know, you, you need to research, make sure that they're not, they're not thieves, but there are people who will serve as that for you, who will, who will writer development people. But I'll say the good news is um, when I started doing this, you know, 20, 20 years ago, Having a publisher listen to your song was a favor to you. Like they did that. It was, oh, good. And now it's not really like that. I mean, I think music is so competitive and all these all these companies are trying so hard to make ends meet. 
that when I show John Mays at Centricity, you know, the, the head of a and Arts, and I show him a song that I like from someone he's never heard of, he thanks me. Hmm. He, he doesn't say, oh, he doesn't roll his eyes. You know, he may not love it, like I, but he will say, oh, Ross, you, you like this. So, so I would just say this, make relationships with the people in the middle before you try to chase down the, down the publisher. Because, look, Marty, if I tell you this is a really great song that I have written, you're going to love it. Or I tell you, this is a really great song I had nothing to, to do with. You're going to love it. You're more likely to believe that second story more than mm-hmm. that first one. Because sure. I, don't have, I don't have a reason to show you the song that I didn't write, except that it's just awesome. So you want to get people around you who have a little bit more influence or a little different influence than you have and become their friends and, and, and get their honest critique. And, you know, if they'll help you, then then try to go through the channels of this person loves what I'm doing and they have influence, you know, um, in ways that I don't. And, you know, you and I both know this, both from personal life and from kind of outliers type stories, but outliers being that book from several years ago. But the whole idea is that none of us gets there because we're just good. That's not the, that's not the story. Ross, you were so good that you're now you're sitting in your house collecting royalties. That's not really the story. The story is I was pretty good and I met this person and Cabin's Call saw me at this thing and Breakaway let me lead worship. And, you know, my dad knew this guy and my, you know what I mean? Whatever, yeah. you know. And then I met this guy and then I met this guy. So there's all those stories. So I would say just, you know, as much as you can get to know people who are doing it and in a genuine way, you know, invest in them. And if you're good and the person's like not unhealthy, I want you to succeed, Marty. Like, I don't feel threatened if you succeed, right? right? Um, I guess there's a scenario where you and I can both be going for the same exact cut and we might be competitive. But for the most part, I want you to succeed because you're a nice guy who, who who I like and you feel the same way. That's why we're doing this, right? right? In this moment, we're doing this because we both like, like each other. So if I convinced you that I have a great song and you have influence that, that I don't have and you just love the song, there's no motive for you not to hand that to somebody mm-hmm. and vice versa. You know, right. you know what I mean? And so I think it's more about that. There's these, there's these middle people that, uh, and the added benefit of that is being around those folks will push you to be better because they're good. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And they'll be honest and say, Hey man, I'm going to be honest. This isn't, isn't competitive. I mean, you've had those conversations where someone says, isn't this song great? And you're like, listen, before you give that to a publisher, I need to tell you, it's, they're not going to, I don't, I don't think that they're going to love it like you do. So I'm warning you, don't send that song in just yet. Because once they hear that Marty Keith, you know, says this is his favorite song and they don't, they don't love it. Well, they in their mind might mark down, Marty Keith doesn't know a great song. What he's talking about, yeah. Right. So just those kind of relationships are just helpful. And, and I think I also just encourage people to keep in mind that you and I both have plenty of stories where the least cool thing that was on our list in terms of like cool things are paid the bills the best or fulfilled our hearts the most. Mm-hmm. And this isn't like a, I'm not trying to like give like a moral of the story that's, that says, you know, don't try to be famous cause it's, cause it's, it's, it's empty. It's not that there's fun stuff about getting cuts and things, but I have had so many wonderful moments in my career where I did something that nobody will ever know about, but it, but it either paid a ton of my bills and I was surprised at that, or it just blessed people. 
and made me feel really valuable and really used by the Lord and really, oh man, what I, what I do matters, right? And you right. know this. I mean, and yeah. so I just I just always try to, to remind folks what I try to remind myself, which is don't buy that lie. I mean, Jesus made a big deal about this, that there's a narrow road that hardly anybody finds and a wide road that everybody finds, and it's it's no good, you know? Yeah. And so we just, we can't, we can't buy those wide road lies that the biggest cuts I'll give you one one example, and then I'll I'll quit rambling. But right when COVID started, there was a concert that Fox Network and iHeart Radio put on, where it was like Billie Eilish, Tim McGraw, Elton John, Sam Smith, all all these big time sort of secular general market stars from their homes, Mm -hmm. just saying these like. Yep. I watched it. Okay, and I had a song that got a sync license for that show. Okay. Uh, for like the kind of the intro. Yeah. So li- literally Elton John says, and we're all in this together. And suddenly my song starts playing, we're all in this together, whatever, right? Okay, yeah, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, and that s- concert was a charity that gave money to first uh, responders. Right. I mean, at the beginning of a global pan- pandemic, it gave money to, fir- fir- to first responders. The sync license was 250 bucks all in. Because it's a charity. Right. So I made literally almost zero dollars. But Elton John queued up my song. Yeah. And it was heard by millions of people for yeah. a charity that saved lives, by the way. Yeah. Probably. Right? So you just have to be careful that you don't see the wrong values. Yeah. Right? And you know, you've got, we've got stories like that for days. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, congratulations on having oh. having your song on that. I, I, like, I remember that. I like the joke that Elton John opened up for me. Right. It's not entirely true. <laughs> but at least he got to announce your <laughs> your song, so to speak. Right. Um, indirectly. But that's yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's a cool. That's one of those things that yeah. on, on paper, you know. Oh, man. Ross must have made a million on that. You know? Well, n- not even that, but just, you know, just to be able to say, man, yeah. I, had, I had the song on this thing that happened. Yes. The visibility of that is crazy. Yeah. 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 So, and that's super cool. Yeah. And those things, sometimes those things are more valuable than the money that you would have gotten from it. Right. And even take out the fame of it, of the whole exposure. There's times whenever I've written, I've written some kids songs for homeschool curriculum that have, that have helped kids memorize scripture all over the world. That's cool. And those are really cool. And they've paid some of my bills, but nobody would think that's a, yeah. you know. But that's, that's what is so cool about music, making music as a living. Yes. You know, again, and that's one of the things that's the purpose of this podcast is that it's not about just the big time artist, the big time songwriter, the big time producer. It's everything that you can possibly think of that allows you to make a living doing music mm-hmm. on whatever level. Right. But if you're able to make your living doing that and it and it brings you joy and someone else joy and you can pay some bills in the process and support your family. Who cares? Right. Who cares if it's on the radio or on TV or whatever, but you're doing homeschool curriculum that thousands of kids around the world are getting to learn learn something. Right. And they're doing it through your music that you've created. You right. Know? And music and, that I created with a guitar and a shaker. Yeah. Yeah. And, you you, and you're getting paid to do it as right. well. You know, you're making a living in music doing that. And that's just a one portion of what you do. Right. But... That's the great thing about it, you know, yes. so that's super cool. Um, real quick, before we, as we wrap up, um, the songwriting 
program that you've created. Tell, yes. tell us about that. Yeah, so briefly, I, for about five years, I've been teaching one-on-one students in a couple of college classes and webinar-type classes that I've taught. I developed this curriculum, and one part of the curriculum is called Tools Not Rules, and it's basically just how to finish, because I've found, and I know you'll understand this, most songwriters don't struggle to, to start to finish or to feel finished. Yep. And so this is basically me compiling, you know, 25 years of writing and five years of teaching um, to say, here's how I, here's how I finish when, when, when I can't. And here's how I make a song better. And here's how I edit and tell myself I'm done and feel confident. So the whole, the sort of creed of the thing is awareness and authority. I want to be aware of how good the song should be and how good it's not. And, aware of how good it should be for this medium and whatever else. And I want to have authority to decide, okay, I'm done. Okay. okay I think this is good, you know? And so that's, it's called tools, not rules. And, um, it's on my website, rosskingmusic.com. And, you know, just a, it's just a way to help people to finish more. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Now, is this, this is something that is already out? It's coming out? It'll, it's out now. Yes. Okay. Um, just go to roskmusic.com slash tools not rules and there's a little intro video you can look at there and we'll we'll make something happen yeah. um, for people that are listening that are wanting to be a songwriter you're you're a novice songwriter you or you're maybe you know it doesn't matter where you are you know because all of us even as professionals we all get stuck oh man right yeah. it doesn't matter where you are I mean that's that's just part of the process right so anything that is helpful for any of us, to kind of get over those humps and over those roadblocks that we that we deal with as a songwriter, um, man, I'm all for it. So if if you're listening and you need you need some help with that, then I would strongly thank re- you recommend tools, not rules. <laughs> and the reason why I do that, just so you know, it's called that, is because I don't I don't like when I go to songwriting stuff and they're like, always do this yeah. to make your chorus better. I'm like, that's that doesn't work, you know. Yeah. Have a tool that you can decide how to use. I don't we don't follow rules. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Well, last thing, uh, any any final do you know pieces of advice, do's and don'ts um, for anything that y- yeah. we've talked about that, that would be helpful for co-writing and honest critique will get you farther than most things. Okay, you know what I mean. I mean, yeah. I, I think you would agree with this, yep. but I remember years ago a good friend of mine said I was just starting to make music, my tapes, and he said, "I said, hey, what do you think about my new stuff?" And he said. Ross, I like this, but if you weren't my friend, I wouldn't buy it. And he hates when I share this because it sounds like he's a jerk, but that's helped me so much because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I got to make it so good that it seamlessly fits in with the other stuff. Yeah, it's got to be radio it's, quality. It's not winning any points on relationship. Now, granted, you know, you know, I both know that relationship matters a ton, but I'm saying in terms of I shoot for, I aim for, and this is why I don't lead a lot of my own worship songs. Because I, I say, I want my worship songs to fit in seamlessly with these great ones, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, just get honest critique from people and collaborate as often as you can yeah. and learn how to like, oh, okay, I see why they're better at this than I am and I'm better at this than they are. And, you know, collaboration and, and critique are everything. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks oh, for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. This has been awesome. And again, I know we could talk for hours on this stuff. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm super grateful for your time and for your expertise and all of this and sharing it. And hopefully yeah, people you. that are listening will, will take it and run and put it into practice into their careers. And 
hopefully, you know, maybe someday they'll be on the podcast. And I remember when Ross King told, <laughs> you know, told this story and that, that yeah. spoke to me and helped me um, where I am now. So I, I look forward to, to that happening. So awesome. Thank Dave, you man, so you're much, awesome. Mark. Have a great day and we'll talk to you soon. You too. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Ross King today. What an amazing wealth of information that Ross is. I hope you guys are taking notes and that you're able to put these things that we're talking about into practice into your life and into your careers. Please let me know. I want to know what's going on with you guys. You can contact me. My email is on the show notes. Um, So please look that up and you can reach out to me. I'm on Facebook, um, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Uh, at John Martin Keith on Instagram and on Facebook page, you can make a living in the music industry. So please let me know how things are going. Send me a message or an email or an Instagram message or something like that. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and let your friends know about it and ask them to subscribe to it. That's how we get the word out about this thing on the platforms that you guys are listening to this podcast on. So please be putting it out there. And thank you guys so very, very much for being a part of this journey. Thank you. Have a great week and look forward to the conversation coming up next week. Remember, Edabrook Productions is here to help if you need consulting services via phone call, Skype, Zoom, or FaceTime. Be sure to let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.